You're listening to a podcast from the Trinity Longroom Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. Uh, welcome back to the Hub's Arts Humanities Research Festival, or welcome if it's your first visit. And we are continuing on the final day with a very special panel on children's literature research. And uh, I just want to, first of all, welcome the people who've come to talk, but also to say something about children's literature research, because Trinity is one of the leading centers in the world for research in children's literature. And that is thanks entirely to my wonderful colleagues uh, from the School of English, not least Porrick White and also Jane Carroll, and also to our librarians. And I think the one thing I'd want to say about children's literature research is it's about a lot more than children's literature. What I've learned from it ranges from everything from, from gender studies right the way through to how we treat individual and archive collections in the library. So I think it's, it's really given us some cutting edge research technologies and theories that have spread way beyond children's literature itself. Uh, so that's more than enough for me, but I do want to congratulate the children's literature team, and I'm looking forward very much to hearing from you on the joys of children's literature research. And I'll hand, hand over now to uh, my colleague, Ari White. Thanks very much, Eve. Um, I, it's absolutely wonderful to be here uh, today as part of the festival and um, to have such a great turnout uh, in terms of children's literature scholars. Uh, so thank you so much for coming along. Uh, I'm going to keep my part brief uh, within this uh, and we're going to move over to the speakers in just a few minutes. But um, what I'd like to do just by way of introduction is to kind of address this title, Instruction with Delight. Uh, the joys of children's literature research. One of the things about the history of children's literature, as Matthew Grenby points out uh, in his work, as do others, um, is this obsession with ideas of origin. Uh, and we're obsessed as children's literature critics about where children's literature began. Um, but we're also obsessed with ideas of the origin myths around children's literature. You know, so. Alice Liddell on a boat um, with Charles Dodson, or Lloyd Osborne drawing maps with Robert Louis Stevenson as kind of the origins of those classic texts. Um, but in terms of those origins, very often uh, we go to this book, uh, A Little Pretty Pocket Book, um, as kind of one of the early examples of children's literature where there is that kind of educational element uh, but also uh, an element of pleasure within it too. And this book that comes from John Newbery is kind of used as a, as a reference point for that shift in culture, that move away from didacticism towards uh, fiction and entertainment for younger readers. Um, so this comes from 1744. Of course, there are lots of other texts um, that are doing something similar during this period. Uh, we've also got direct connections um, Trinity has direct connections with the origins of children's literature through figures such as uh, Dean Swift or Oliver Goldsmith, um, their abridged work as well as Goldsmith's uh, original work directly addressing younger readers. Um, so, but within these histories, uh, very often we, um, we, we leave out the Irish element. And this, I'll just go back actually to this, this instruction with delight is what's written at the bottom of um, Newbery's book. So this is where this title uh, for, the, for today's session comes from. Um, 
And as I was thinking about the origins of children's literature and this idea of instruction with delight, I kind of paused and thought about the delight within children's literature research and how we never actually talk about that. Uh, and our, our, the question, I suppose, is why do we not talk about that? I think there is a fear that our serious research won't be taken seriously if we reveal that we're enjoying this too much. Uh, so what I've tried to do today is, is get a balance um, and really think about how this serious research, this cutting edge research uh, that we're doing in Trinity, um, how we also find moments of joy as researchers within that and how we can talk about both. The, both simultaneously. So we've got a, a great lineup of speakers who are, who are going to address um, kind of the re this cutting edge research and the moments of joy and pleasure they find within it. And then towards the end, we'll have a discussion about what next for children's literature studies, or where next for children's literature studies. By way of example, I'll start with some of my own research and where I have found this joy and pleasure. Uh, as I was saying, the Irish element of the origins of children's literature very often are absent from these greater histories of children's literature in, uh, in kind of broader English literature. And one of my moments of uh, kind of joy and pleasure came from my discovery of Mary Paul Pollard's discovery, um, my own personal discovery of, of her work. And when I was reading through uh, the Lober Guide to Irish Fiction back in 2008, I was working on, a, on an essay for um, the Oxford History of the Irish Book. Uh, and came across this book uh, that she had made reference to, um, which is uh, from 1794, The History of Harry Spencer, uh, which she describes as the first Irish, the first text written by an Irish person and printed in Ireland. Um, so this is kind of a text now that we use to uh, explore the origins of Irish children's literature. It's a reference point within those discussions. And the Pollard Collection in Trinity has also facilitated more joy and pleasure when you can actually go in and hold this a copy. This is a, a photograph of the copy in the Pollard Collection um, that gives you that physical connection to your academic research, but also to the origins of Irish children's literature, which then becomes something that uh, I write about uh, quite a bit <laughs> over the last decade or so. Um, and it's very difficult to explain that joy of the archive to somebody that's never experienced it before. But like I said, that joy can only come through the serious research. Um, so that's just one example of my own personal discovery. More recently, uh, I was wor I'm working on uh, the work of Bora Cullum. There's an edited collection coming out with Routledge in the coming months. Uh, and very briefly, I was trying to figure out the origins of Bora Cullum's work, um, like his first uh, text for younger readers, or his first text for children. Uh, and A Boy in Erin, we can see here, illustrated by Jack Lee Yates, is from 1913, it's largely considered his first book for children, which, which it seems to be. Um, but I'd also find references to the destruction of a hostel that he'd uh, written for uh, St. Enda's School that had been run by uh, Porrick Pierce, and, but I couldn't find a copy of it. And I simply happened upon uh, a, the publication of it in Pierce's McHale, uh, or on McHale, uh, from 1910, and uh, it kind of opened up this whole world for me, uh, made me rethink how to position Colum's use of myth in his work. Um, so one of the things I do is I, uh, in, my, in an essay in this forthcoming collection, 
is talk about Cullum's rewriting of Gwilla Sivna, or the Frenzied Prince is what he calls it, and he kind of incorporates Irish myth into that. Um, but looking at it within the context of this text, um, the destruction of the hostel, which is a mythic narrative uh, for boys in St. Endes, really made me rethink the whole way in which Cullum uses a myth across his many, many publications for younger readers. Um, so that brought me real joy. Um, so uh, today is an opportunity to reflect on these broader experiences as researchers of children's literature, as well as to contemplate the current status of research in, in the discipline. So really to think about where we've come from, where we are, and where we'd like to go. And it's great to have four amazing experts here today talking about new research. Our four speakers all have connection to the MPhil programme in children's literature here at the School of English. And they all come from different backgrounds, with different viewpoints and different research interests. So it's wonderful to have this group here today. Um, they're also at different stages in, in their research of children's literature. So I'm going to introduce everybody now, so you won't have to hear from me uh, again. So um, first up, we've got Nate, oh, sorry, Maeve Nicolón, uh, who is a third-year PhD student at the School of English, and she holds an MPhil in children's literature from TCD. And her research is funded by the Irish Research Council. Uh, she's also an amazing novelist and author, uh, and publishes under Maeve Collins. Um, she will talk about the development of Irish-American children's literature from 1850 to 1940. Then we'll hear from Amanda Dunn, who is a specialist children's bookseller and book subscription coordinator, who very recently um, completed the MPhil in children's literature. So this really is hot off the presses. Um, she has a BSc and an MA in communications and is a reviewer of children's books for Children's Books Ireland. And she'll be speaking on bridging the gap towards an aesthetic of early adolescent literature. Dr. Celia Grace Kenny uh, is our next speaker, and she is a graduate of Trinity College Dublin, Edinburgh University, and Cardiff University. She's a writer in the field of religion and culture, and is currently a student on the MPhil programme in children's literature. So just in the third week of the MPhil programme, uh, and she will speak on reading children. And our final speaker will be Erin Laidlaw, uh, who earned her MPhil in children's literature from Trinity in 2022. And she currently works for the ARC, which is a children's cultural centre in Dublin. And she will speak on children from nowhere, the representation of refugees in children's literature. Uh, and like I say, if you have any thoughts, questions or comments, we'll have a discussion at the end of this session. Uh, so first of all, over to Maeve. So to begin, what is Irish American children's literature? Um, I define it as uh, mostly books for children up to 18, written by first or second generation um, Irish immigrants, published in the US and which examine Irish ethnic themes. From the 19th century, this primarily means realist fiction centred on the Catholic perspective, um, which follows young Irish immigrant protagonists as they overcome anti-Irish Catholic hostility in their adopted homes. From the 20th century, um, following the Irish literary revival, 
Retellings of Celtic myths and folk tales for children are the order of the day. Um, so why has Irish American children's literature not been identified as a genre before now? Um, there are a few reasons. Firstly, some of the texts I examine, um, a selection of which are kind of uh, unclearly displayed here, um, have previously been treated as adult literature despite the fact that they explicitly address a child reader. For example, the critic Eileen Sullivan describes the protagonist in Marianne Sadler's Alice Reardon as a woman, despite the fact that she is 12 years old for most of the text, and the text's subheading is A Tale for the Young. Such instances as this are possibly due to vague narratorial address in text, which was common in early to mid 19th century children's literature. Child readers were often not so directly addressed by authors that the possibility of what the critic Barbara Wall describes as dual address, meaning an implied child and adult reader, was not possible. In studies of Irish American literature, um, literature that is unambiguously intended for children is often absent, such as the work of Pora Collum and Ella Young, neither of whom appear, for example, in Charles Fanning's foundational account of Irish American literature, The Irish Voice in America. This is possibly because historically children's literature has been taken less seriously as a field of research um, and thus dismissed or overlooked. <coughs> there is therefore considerable scope for research, um, original research and thinking in a project like mine which recovers and reclaims many neglected titles of Irish American literature and embraces them as children's literature at last. One of the most joyous elements of my research has been examining my primary texts in the context of American children's literature from the same period, um, some examples of which you can see here. Um, doing so has, among other things, uh, revealed evidence of a preoccupation with the figure of the Irish immigrant child in American children's texts. This is particularly true of highly influential um, Sunday school literature. Founded in 1824, the American Sunday School Union had distributed more than six million copies of their publications, including children's literature, across the country by 1830. References to Irish Catholics are surprisingly frequent within these texts, with many emphasizing the need to be kind to Irish children, others encouraging their conversion from Catholicism and all expressing the ignorance and helplessness of the Irish. So here are two examples of texts featuring Irish characters. The first one, entitled The Shamrock Flower from 1853, in which an Irish Catholic woman fears American Protestants murdering her children, reads, now sensible and well-meaning as the Irish were, they had been told that all out of the Catholic Church were a God-forgetting, a God-defying people, and having never been acquainted with a Protestant, how could they know to the contrary? In the next text, Irish Amy, published in 1854, the author expresses her hope that her Protestant readers might consider adopting an Irish street urchin, as happens in the story, and quote, train them up to be happy and useful, instead of becoming miserable vagabonds, useless to the world, and breeding a moral and physical pestilence wherever numbers of them are brought together. Um, considering many Irish-American children's texts go to lengths to depict the corruptness of Protestants 
and often exaggerate anti-Irish Catholic sentiment in the process, it can be argued that in creating their own children's literature, Irish-American writers were not only writing for one audience, that is Irish immigrant children, but writing back to another, Sunday school publishers. Um, so this is only a tiny snapshot of what my project examines, but um, I hope you have found it interesting as I do. Thanks very much. In this stage, there is a reimagining or reconsidering of what it means for an adolescent to be an individual within a family, moving away from the centrality of that family towards friend groups, taking on greater independence, and also experiencing significant change, personally, socially, emotionally, and educationally. Therefore, writing for this age group requires different considerations in its representations of that nascent emergence of self-knowledge and identity and as with so much else, literature can be hugely significant in engaging with that. While we all went through a similar stage of development, even if it's longer ago for some of us than others, for young adolescents today, this is happening within the context of a world that is vastly different than it was for adolescents even 10 years ago. And while the publishing world has also evolved, that evolution has seen young adult novels push further towards kiddled and mature themes leaving young adolescents without literature that reflects themselves and their concerns. Coupling this with a market segmentation in publishing which focuses on under 12s or young adults, the typical young adolescent reader generally isn't catered for. They are going through so many changes and much of the literature available to them does not provide a representative reflection of that with some notable exceptions. Barbara Wall, who's getting another outing today, described the designation of young adult as publisher flattery, but arguably it could also be seen as a rather more exploitative categorization to 
facilitate its marketing to its biggest consumer group, which is adults. So Porrick suggested I talk about joy at a, you know, probably about three weeks before my dissertation was due. Talk <laughs> <laughs> a little thin on the ground and maybe a little optimistic. He's usually positive, but I thought that was tipping into extreme optimism. Um, so I thought about what gave me joy. Um, choosing three very new novels, The Summer We Turn Green, The Blue Book of Nebo, and Freya Hart is Not a Puzzle, which was pretty much hot off the press at the time, with no existing research relating to them, and creating a critical framework for my analysis, which involved blending relatively old theory on narrative voice with very current neuroscientific theories, was risky, but it was rewarding. I knowingly stepped into an under-researched area, so there were no safety nets, but it was the logical and emotional culmination of every piece of research I engaged in throughout the MPhil. I also felt rather vindicated on a regular basis, as what I was discovering reinforced my hypothesis that early adolescent texts are distinctive and they support that importance. When one of my texts, The Blue Book of Nebo, won the Carnegie, I felt my judgment was kind of further endorsed. <laughs> For me, this research project is a glorious indulgence. I took the time out of my normal life for something I really wanted to do, and was constantly aware of how much more there was to discuss and examine. And my two critical readers had to rein me in repeatedly, telling me to save it for next time. I've been really fortunate in being bolstered and encouraged throughout my research, and I'm really grateful to my cohort, particularly Gracie, Elisa, and Neve in particular. From my supervisor, to staff at CBI, the current laureate, the NOG, authors, teachers, and adults coming into the bookshop where I work looking for recommendations for early teen readers. The reaction has been incredibly positive and supportive, which brought me reassurance regularly throughout the process. Children's literature is the foundation of all engagement with literature. Yet, as with most things child-related, this is often overlooked. There is so much scope and so much to be discovered in children's literature, and it's vital that we give it our best because in my opinion at least, children are ultimately the most important readers. Thank you. Thank you, Amanda. Uh, Stephen, next up. There are no slides, it's, it's not a mistake. <laughs> no technology, just me. <laughs> So already we are hearing about the excitement and joy of the history of children's literature, the spectrum of talented writers, huge variety of ways that artists and poets have collaborated to encourage an appreciation of the power and the beauty of words. I have just five minutes, so my aim is to pers persuade you of just one thing, and that is that the most vital purpose of children's literature is to engender habits of compassion. In order to strengthen the claim, I'll speak briefly about one of the joys, the latest joys of my life, and that's the work of Catherine Rundle, whom some of you might have met at the conference, the children's conference. Uh, so she writes, she, her writing is full of adventurous ch children and all manner of impossible creatures. So it'll be a, a short foray into Catherine Rundle's work, but tantalizing enough, I hope, for you to explore her work more fully. But first, let's consider the art of engendering compassion. Whether it's through the fairy tale, fantasy, the adventure story, the school story, or contemporary eco-critical writing, 
Each of those manifestations of children's literature has the potential to engender habits of empathy and compassion which, if they are robust enough, will be both life-enhancing for the individual and world-building for the community. To read is to find freedom from the solipsistic bubble of infancy. To read is to turn outward from our first needy relationships so that we learn to imagine the life of others. This is true of all literature, of course. However, books for the young reader, reading habits practiced at a tender age, have the power to kickstart a life of critical thinking. And it's through critical thinking that we're able to challenge the status quo, to deepen or disrupt inherited ideas about fairness, equality, justice, and our relationship with others. It's through plot and description, through narrative, that young people learn to, to compare the contours of the world they know with alternative worlds and inhabit for a while locations of the imagination. People by better leaders, kinder communities, and with trustworthy teachers. Compassion begins when we accept that our own values and practices either inhibit or enhance the freedom of others to live well. Let's briefly consider the work of Catherine Rundle, whose books combine high adventure with deep insights into the human condition. Art meets life in Catherine Rundle. She is a fellow of All Souls College, Oxford, a scholar of 17th century poet John Donne. Her hobbies include tightrope walking in high heels <laughs> backward, climbing tall buildings at night, and cartwheeling. And she's on YouTube demonstrating how to cook and eat a tarantula. I can point you in. <laughs> and so, in defiance of Roland Barthes, I find it utterly delightful to keep Randall's lifestyle firmly in mind when I read her books. In 2017, she wrote a book called The Explorers, a, a story about a group of children who experience a plane crash in the Amazon jungle. Faced with the problem of survival and a desire to return home, they discover how to make fire, how to construct a shelter, how to spot danger, whether that's animal or vegetable, and how to cook and eat spiders. Their greatest problem, of course, is they're unable to get out of the jungle on their own. So Rundle introduces a savior, an aging explorer who had also crashed his plane in that region years previously, and who for reasons of his own, decided to remain in solitude in the jungle. When the children find him, the explorer is appalled to have been found. He's gruff and fearsome in appearance, but he teaches them lots of things. Compassion enters the picture when the children discover that the explorer has suffered a great tragedy in his life. He lives with the grief of the loss of his wife and small son. And simultaneously, they're learning, they're observing that this man has a profound respect for the natural world. Randall has written a story about rites of passage. In the midst of adventure, novelty, and danger, the children are given a first intimation that adults, despite their age and experience, also have to live with fears and tears and vulnerability. So the explorer in this story represents not simply one more person who will minister to children's needs, 
but a signal of the truth that there is no bright line between childness and adulthood. So to conclude, Catherine Rundle tells us that she begins each day by performing a cartwheel. Reading, she says, is almost exactly as cartwheeling because it turns the world upside down and leaves you breathless. So I wonder in the five minutes, have I persuaded you to go home and learn to cartwheel or to lie on the sofa and read children's books? And Erin? about the representation of refugees in contemporary picture books. Now, although joy isn't a word that immediately springs to mind when thinking about this topic, um, being able to immerse myself in picture books, and especially in a place that placed so much value and emphasis on picture books, picture books, did bring me a lot of joy. So I work with Children's Books Ireland together with Refugees Reading Guide 2022, which you can see in the corner there. Um, it's an annually updated list of 88 books for early readers to young adults across a range of formats compiled by CBI and the UNHCR. I looked specifically at picture books published after 2014 as this was the year that the global total of refugees surpassed that of the Second World War, marking the beginning of what has now become known as the European refugee crisis. Over this period, hostile border policies and anti-immigration politics have increased globally, uh, notably the Brexit referendum and the Trump administration. Dehumanising narratives have populated the media, accompanied by a problematic visual culture, homogenising refugees and portraying them as helpless victims or as dangerous threats. The, the increase in children's books about migrants and refugees correlates with these events. Out of the 88 books on CBI's guide, 51 have been published since 2014, and many creators state that they aim to counter the dehumanising narratives and amplify the voices of refugees by writing and illustrating books that create empathy. So my main question going into my research was, do the creators achieve this? Do they challenge these harmful representations or do they unknowingly reinforce them? I found three major themes shared by the pitch books, refugee camps, water and borders. From the pictures you can see these themes, refugee camps feature as key settings or are visible in the background, water crossings happen in every story, and blue often dominates the colour palettes. Borders manifest themselves in different ways, physically as fences or country boundaries, but also socially, linguistically and psychologically. These discoveries were expected as all of these liminal spaces are prevalent in refugee journeys, especially those that we see in the media. The discovery that surprised me the most uh, was the pattern of absence. In most of the picture books, the characters are nameless, their causes of flight are unspecified, their countries of origin are unnamed, they have ambiguous ethnicity, and very few have first-person perspective or speech. From the pictures, you can clearly see the visual absence in the prolific use of blank space employed by the different illustrators. So I spoke to the pitch book editorial team at Walker Books to ask why there was such absence in refugee narratives. They suggested that being non-specific created universal stories, and on a practical level, this was marketable globally. However, I found that these absences homogenise refugees and their experiences, creating what Adichie calls a single story. The characters were defined by their legal status. Their countries of origin were unidentifiable, 
illustrated as vacant landscapes both before and after the arrival of war in comparison to the detailed representation of Western host countries. The decision to avoid representing race and ethnicity through illustration with, for example, line drawing, uh, often made the characters white by default. The work of anthropologist Renata Rosaldo really helped me to define these blank spaces and absences. Rosaldo argues that refugees as citizens of borderlands occupy zones of a zero-degree culture, spaces where they are denied their culture and identity. Refugees reading these texts would not see themselves reflected empoweringly, but instead see children without a home, family, or culture. In representing these zones of zero-degree culture, the pitch book creators perpetuate harmful narratives about displaced people, essentially creating children from nowhere. So when I came across uh, Look and Pebble by Wendy Godot and Daniel Ignaeus, this was a particularly joyful discovery. Not only are the colours joyful, but the central character Lubna has a name, she has an identity not linked to her refugee status, and she has a voice. The moment that brought me the most joy during my research was when, after staring at the pages of this book for far too long, I realised that there was a word on the front of the boat, and this word is Arabic for hope. Thank you.